This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who sings It's the End of the World as We Know It to Myself While Washing My Hands, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, joining us from Washington, D.C., is Ron Klain, the general counsel of the investment firm Revolution. He previously worked as the White House Ebola Response Coordinator, also called the Ebola Czar, under President Obama in 2014 and 2015, and served as Chief of Staff to Joe Biden and was a senior aide to President Obama. Most recently, he's the co-host of a podcast about the coronavirus called Epidemic, alongside Dr. Celine Gounder. Ron, welcome to Recode Decode. Kara, thanks for having me. So, just wait, wait, wait. We know each other a long time from tech stuff, from a long, long, long time ago. And Revolution is is owned by, uh, run by Steve Case, or founded by Steve Case. Um, and uh, so we have a very different relationship uh, than than this. What we're talking about right now, which is going to be coronavirus. But welcome to to talk about this. I wish we weren't talking about this uh, to begin with. Well, and let's let's go full disclosure. Karen and I have an even longer relationship oh, no. with that back to Georgetown University. We were both editors on the student newspaper. Oh, the that's Oya. right. That's right. We, I was going to give the speech there, but it was canceled because of coronavirus. Because of exactly uh, with with caution and to try to be safe with the students. So let's just get right into it right now. Um, talk a little bit about the situation at, on the ground. I know we've talked about the, we're going to get into the competence and everything else, but how do you look at the situation we're in at this moment? Well, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how bad a problem this is going to be in the U.S. Uh, what we know is that we don't know. What we know is that all the people on Twitter who are posting their own personal epidemiological studies and projections are guessing. And they're guessing because we don't really have good data. You can't build a good model if you don't have good data. And the data that people have comes from China, which is unreliable and uncertain. We're starting to see data from Korea, which has a little bit of experience with this, but even so, very limited experience and literally just days of data from Italy. So we know we're on the low end of a curve that is headed upwards. What the top of that curve looks like, we just don't know. Tony Fauci, the nation's best infectious disease expert, uh, absolutely refused to put a number on it this week when he testified before Congress. But I think uh, whether it's uh, millions or tens of millions, it is going to be a very significant event here in the U.S. Lastly, we don't know because we haven't really tested people in this country to see how much of the virus is here already, how widespread it is already, and how much is spreading here in the U.S. already. All right. So last night, testing was not on the lips of President Trump when he was giving that speech he gave, which I think rattled markets very badly, where he called for some kind of uh, ban of, of, of travel from Europe, although initially it was unclear, and then the White House clarified it. Talk about the importance of testing, the, the beginning, because right now, yeah. and what's happening, because we are, there's hundreds of thousands of tests across the world. Explain how we got here on lack of testing. So, first, why is testing important? Testing is important because the traditional public health intervention to an epidemic is you find out where the disease is, you find out who those people who have it, who they came into contact with, and you isolate them. And you try to limit the number of chains of transmission. You try to figure out, uh, does Kara have it? Who did Kara see? Do they have it? And really kind of control the disease that way. You can only do that if you know who has it. And you can only know who has it if you test people. And the countries that have done the best at starting to get this under control, particularly Korea, have done extensive testing. So let's think about the numbers. Korea has tested almost 3,000 people per every million Koreans. 
In the U.S., we've tested about five people per every million Americans, okay? So that's obviously a dramatic, dramatic difference. Now, why is that? Uh, that's a combination perhaps of uh, nonfeasance and malfeasance, that I would say as a lawyer. <laughs> the nonfeasance, the, the, the kind of just the mistakes and bungling came when the Centers for Disease Control decided not to adopt the test that the WHO had suggested to most of the world and had tried to do it on their own. Uh, for, and why was that? I, yeah. I, I've seen so, look, that they... I, think for, I think for traditional listeners of the Recode podcast, this is the classic build-by distinction. And I think, you know, they decided that they would build. And I think uh, persistent listeners of this podcast will know that buying is almost always the better answer. But why build? Why build? I want to get to yeah. that because I think it's really fascinating. Like they had a test. They have a test that it's been using but at the World Health Organization had. Why build if it's a matter of time, if, if it's a ma- time you need yeah. to move quickly? So I'd say I think the negative about the WHO test, which now private labs are improving on, but the negative about the WHO test when this decision was made in December and January was it took a number of days for a result right, to get back. Right. Yeah, and so I think the, the CDC thought they could build a test that might have a faster turnaround. What they built was a test that just wasn't accurate and just didn't work. And as a result, they squandered a lot of time. Now what we're really doing is privatizing the testing solution, largely saying that if you're in the clinical setting, you, you, you feel like you might have this virus, you go see your doctor. Instead of that test being sent to a state uh, or any kind of city public health lab, basically Quest and LabCorp will run the diagnostic just like they run the rest of your blood panel or anything else. And so uh, that has the advantage of allowing this testing problem to hopefully be fixed at scale. There are a lot of Quest and LabCorp labs around the country. But it also puts it in private hands. We're not really sure how accurate these tests are going to be. I'm sure they're going to be kind of accurate, but maybe not a standardized test across the country. It also means that the state and local public health departments won't really get the data on a timely basis. There's a lag between your private lab testing you and that data making it to the government. So it's a bit of throwing up our hands on the idea that the government's going to find out where these cases are, isolate people, and uh, isolate chains of transmission. So there is going to be no public government test whatsoever. It's going to be through these, through your healthcare systems. Uh, no. The, what's what then going to happen is that as finally they get this uh, public testing thing fixed and more kits go out to state and local governments, they'll have the job of what the experts call surveillance. Their main focus will be to go into places and find people to be tested, go into nursing homes and test everyone there, go into senior centers or uh, healthcare facilities that serve vulnerable populations. So they're going to be looking for the disease. Right. Uh, that's, I think that's the way this is going to evolve over the next week or so, which is if you're in a clinical setting, you're probably going to get a private test. If uh, you're in a place where people are looking for the disease, that will probably be the job of state and local government. But, and that's but we are so far it. behind that's in order to contain contain it, to find it, to contain it. It's both to contain it, but also really to make sure we're getting medical care to the people who need it. You know, even under the best of circumstances, in a normal flu season, nursing homes uh, are just completely vulnerable to outbreaks, spot outbreaks in, in many epidemics that kill too many people. And so we need to figure out which nursing homes this virus is in and uh, really get care quickly to those people if it's there and starting to spread in, in a nursing home for, for in, in particular. All right, now talk about the malfeasance part. So the malfeasance part is, look, under the best of circumstances, the government is slow and difficult to maneuver. And that's why President Obama asked me to come in and run the Ebola response in 2014. In the situation we're facing now, President Trump was affirmatively sending a message to the bureaucracy, this isn't a big deal. I don't want to hear it's a big deal. Uh, I don't want anyone to act like it's a big deal. And that uh, slowed this down even further. So we know that there was about a month for most of late January, early February, as the CDC pivoted to other testing solutions, that there was a bureaucratic squabble between the CDC and the FDA over approving different ways of testing for this virus. And that's the kind of thing where if the White House had been on top of it, they would have brought both agencies in, they would have resolved it quickly. I do think that President Trump kind of had a don't test, don't tell mindset about this. He didn't want to know the bad news. He was out there as recently as two and a half weeks ago telling people, we only had 15 cases in America. They were mostly going to get resolved soon. Uh, We'd be down to five in a few days. And that, you know, that sends a signal through the system. I'm I'm sort of like, I was interested in talking to people on Twitter and other places. Why is this, why is that? allowed? Like, how is it that this is the system, that if one person decides it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal across the entire government system when it's 
obvious there are outbreaks. Well, it's not just one person, right? It is the president. Mm-hmm. It is the head of the executive branch, the person all these people work for. And the president's made it very clear that people who disagree with him get fired. They get ostracized. They get ridiculed on Twitter. Uh, they suffer severe consequences. So, you know, we should be careful in our choice of presidents because presidents matter. And this is a case where his actions have mattered. They've mattered, obviously, in rattling public confidence, but they also matter in kind of how the government has responded to this on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, look, the first senior-level person at CDC that said this was going to be a huge problem, Dr. Nancy Messonnier, who said publicly that widespread transmission in the U.S. is inevitable, the next day, basically, she was yanked from public appearances. Uh, She was kind of sidelined. Trump's allies on Twitter attacked her as part of the deep state. Her brother happens to be Rod Rosenstein from the Justice Department previously. And so, you know, this became like a big fandango. And, um, you know, that just sends a lot of signals to people in the government about the consequences of speaking up and speaking honestly. That's exactly the opposite of what you want in one of these situations. So, it, it, and also, this isn't to be hidden. I mean, viruses don't listen that way. They don't—they cross borders when they feel like it. They do other things. How do they imagine this would work in terms of if you can quiet a doctor or just one doctor, the others aren't going to say nothing, and obviously people are sick. Yeah, so I have no idea why Donald Trump thought the strategy would work. I have no idea why he thought he could tweet away the virus or make us all not pay attention or think that it would go away. It's possible that people around him just didn't tell him the truth because they were scared of the consequences of telling him the truth. It's possible he just refused to listen. I think one of the things he's done for all three years is try to figure out a strategy to get through a day and not really think about what the next day would look like. But the chickens are coming home to roost on this one. Um, they've come home to roost in the place that it bothers Trump the most, the stock market. But also, most importantly to more Americans, it's come home to roost in terms of our health and our safety. And this is just not a problem he can spin away or spin down. So let's talk about uh, last night's uh, speech. And then I, I want to get to solutions with you and like, how, how yeah. you handle it with, uh, with Ebola, which has some relation but not complete and not uh, – it's, it's, it's similar and dissimilar at the same time. But first talk about last night's announcement, stopping people from moving. That was what Trump had tried to do at the beginning of this, which was limit travel uh, from China uh, where the outbreak was first seen. How, talk about this methodology of doing that. I mean, I assume there's like 10 different tools you use, this being one of them. So, you know, uh, president's a carpenter. All problems are nails. And um, when he sees a problem, he thinks about a travel ban. Now, look, there's no question that if you reduce the number of people coming to this country, you're going to reduce the introduction of the virus. And that's not completely irrational. It's something that public health experts do recommend to some extent. Uh, In fact, Dr. Fauci testifying before Congress, again, advocated more travel restrictions. The problem is that what they buy you is time, not protection. So the president said in January, I'm slapping these restrictions on China. Uh, Larry Kudlow said we have the country sealed airtight. Well, that just wasn't true, right? So even the travel ban from China exempted large classes of people. Americans could go back and forth to China and still did in substantial numbers. Chinese goods could be imported here on Chinese ships with Chinese crews that would unload them in American ports. Same things for planes. Now, why is that? It's because we live in such an interconnected world that completely cutting off any kind of interaction with China would be impossible. Most of the medical supplies in our hospitals come from China. Most of the drugs either directly come from China or have products that come from China or assembled in China. So we can't cut ourselves off to China Reducing the number of travelers, as the president did, somewhat slowed the introduction of the virus here. That was a good thing, but it didn't protect us. And so the only rationale for these travel restrictions in this kind of situation is to buy time. And we have bought some time. And so the way you evaluate these travel restrictions is, was that time used well? Did we take the two or three months of delay that the restrictions might have uh, achieved for us and use it to fix this testing problem, to fix hospital capacity, to get ready for what was coming? And I think that's the tragedy here, that the travel ban was inevitably incomplete. The virus is here. It is spreading here. It continues to spread here. And we aren't ready for it. So what about this release ban then? What's the effect of it? Again, I think anytime you reduce the number of people coming here, you do somewhat reduce the introduction of the – further introduction of the virus here. But once again, it's a very, very inexplicable, politically targeted 
uh, ban here. We ban travel from the countries of Europe on the continent, but not the UK, even though there are more cases of coronavirus in the UK than in more than half the countries of Europe. The health minister of the UK has coronavirus. So uh, the decision to exempt the UK is obviously a political decision, you know? Yeah. And in fact, you know, the United States has more cases of coronavirus than most of Europe, except for a handful of countries in Europe. So it's not that travel bans are stupid or wrong per se, because again, anything you do to reduce people is reducing the spread of the virus. It's that if if you think this is a solution, uh, you're you're fooling yourself. And I think the reason the president did this was to try to create a big fight about the travel restriction to take away attention or from to the focus failure on it, that he did it originally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to take away attention from the fact that we have this huge testing fiasco, that our hospitals aren't ready. Uh, it's, you know, an effort to kind of push the problem over there. You know, we have known well over a thousand cases already in the U.S. I think it's certainly a substantially higher number than that. It's spreading every day. Um, and this travel restriction from Europe is not going to stop that. And, and the European Union was surprised. Apparently, there was no discussion about it. Yeah, uh, it obviously was something he pulled out of his hat here at the last minute. Uh, no consultation, no preparation, and, um, you know, par for the course for how Donald Trump has run his presidency. So let's talk about what should have been announced last night. Were you surprised by that this was it? This was the entire enchilada, essentially? Yeah, I was. I thought um, if the president's going to give an Oval Office address, he's only given one other in his entire presidency, that it would be a substantial set of measures. And uh, it would be, um, you know, something more than just seven minutes of humana, humana, humana with a travel ban thrown in it. So, you know, what what he should he have said last night was he should have set a goal and a plan to test tens of millions of Americans. He should have let the American people know that not just that he would say anyone who get wants a test could get a test, but in fact, anyone who wants a test could get a test. And much more than that, that um, we would actually go out there and affirmatively test people in these vulnerable populations in these vulnerable places. Without cost. He, without cost. Without cost. Of course, it should be free to get tested. And all the uh, different things around the testing should be free. So in that case, so that was one, testing, that they're, they're, fix the testing problem. And then the second thing uh, I expected to hear from him last night that I think was literally just a, a sentence in the speech was some sort of solution for the inevitable crush we're going to face in our healthcare system. You hear people talking all the time about flattening the curve, and what that means is trying to extend out the cases so that there's fewer cases in any one moment, not a sudden surge of cases. Our healthcare system runs almost at full capacity. It doesn't take much to make a healthcare system in a city collapse. The kind of scenes you're seeing in northern Italy right now where people can't even get into a hospital, people are being treated in the hallways. We could see that in America in the next week or two in certain places uh, where the virus gets widespread. So this is this is hospitals being able to – hospitals right now have other issues too. People have heart attacks. They have other diseases. They have cancer and things like that. And this puts – and, and there's accidents and the normal right. and the normal pace of living your life. So this will, will put a surge of people into these hospitals. Correct. And uh, hospitals do generally run pretty full in the country. We don't have a lot of empty hospital beds. Certainly in our major cities we don't. So it doesn't take many new cases. Uh, people who need hospitalization from coronavirus, it's just 10 to 12 percent of the cases. But 10 to 12 percent of a large number is a large number. And those people, the ones who do need hospitalization, uh, will be in the hospital for a while. Uh, again, most people don't need it, but if you need it, it's because you have some kind of uh, respiratory problem. Right, the acute respiratory a, syndrome. Yeah, and so you're going to need extensive care. You might well need use of a ventilator. Almost every ventilator in this country has someone using it right now. And so we need to really surge up that capacity, have the, have the capability of surging up that capacity. You know, Kara, it's not just that people are already in hospitals with other things. We find in epidemics around the world that when they get bad, Sometimes the loss of life from things that are not the epidemic actually exceeds the epidemic because people with heart attacks don't go to the hospital. Their heart pain don't go to the hospital because they're worried that I'll get the virus if I go to the hospital. Or if they get there, they wait longer or all these things. And so it's, it, you know, as we think about the health consequences of this epidemic, it's not just the people who will be hit by this disease itself. It's also the people who will have their health care compromised by the way in which the health care system 
is compromised. Okay. When we get back, we're going to talk about what to do about that. We're here with Ron Klain, who is President Obama's Ebola czar and is now the co-host of a podcast about coronavirus called Epidemic. He also works for a guy named Joe Biden sometimes. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of PropG Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Ron Klain. He was President Obama's Ebola's arm. We're talking about the situation we find ourselves in with coronavirus. We're talking about the stresses on the hospital system. So what is the solution to that, to create uh, field hospitals, right? Almost, I've seen in other countries, there's, there's, you know, they're putting up hospitals in, in Asia, uh, in China specifically, they put up new hospitals very quickly. Talk about that. Yeah, there's two things we should be doing really quickly here. The first is we should be moving testing out of the hospitals and building temporary testing facilities. Um, drive throughs is what they have in Korea mm-hmm. and some parts of Europe increasingly. That's where um, people drive and ha- are swabbed, right? As drive and swab, so right? So people, and, uh, this is a swab system where you, your, your throat right. is swabbed, your, your throat is swabbed. Uh, your, it, it, uh, it's both a, a nasal swab and perhaps a throat swab. Kind of depends on how the test is administered. Most often, I think that most of the testing in America will be nasal swabbing. Um, not particularly pleasant, but how it gets done. And what we want to do is we want to get it out of the hospitals so that people coming in who have the viruses aren't infecting other people in the hospital for other reasons, not infecting the healthcare workers if you can do it kind of in a, in a remote setting or in a, a you know setting outside the medical care setting uh, and process people much more quickly that way. So uh, you want to take the load off and the risk off by moving that to kind of specialized facilities, drive-through facilities, walk-up facilities, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're going to need uh, FEMA-like temporary hospitals, field hospitals, you know, the ability to drop in a couple hundred beds on a parking lot or in a taking over a closed-down school and converting that potentially to a temporary hospital. Uh, and, and we're going to need to really surge that up in selected places. The challenge is because we haven't tested, we don't really know yet where we're going to need it. Right. We don't have eyes on where this disease is and where it's going. Uh, we don't really know which of the many cities in the country that could be overwhelmed will be overwhelmed. So until we have better testing, we're getting a flexible capability to ramp up that uh, capacity, that hospital bed capacity. And, and should that and come pl- from the – I've known the governors, a lot of people are talking about how the governors are just taking this over because they feel that there's not as much leadership. And that includes uh, Republican and Democratic uh, governors. In uh, Mike, I'm thinking Mike DeWine or uh, Mr. Ho- Larry Hogan in Maryland, Gavin Newsom, others. Talk about the – who really should be responding here? So the federal government unquestionably should lead. This is a is a virus that came from overseas. It's a it's a national problem. Uh, you know the the administration should be leading. It isn't, and as a result, as you said, Kara, governors of both parties are stepping up and setting the rules for uh, closures of. Uh, large events or schools. Uh, they are taking the lead on kind of building up this capacity for their healthcare systems. I mean, this is devolving quickly to a state and local response. Not just governors, but mayors and county officials and local public health officials are stepping up. Uh, you know, in Sa- Santa Clara County was one of the very first uh, jurisdictions to act on a county basis to close major sporting events and to shut down uh, large gatherings. And so what we're going to see is a very localized response. That's a challenge, right? Because 
Uh, it's not that these state and local governments even. don't have great capacity. They do. But um, we, we're not giving us a full picture of what needs to happen. Uh, everyone's treating it as if it's a local thing, and it is a local thing, but it's also a national thing. And so yeah, people move between pe- people areas. Move. If Santa Clara does it and, and next door doesn't do it, it's a problem. San Mateo County doesn't do it. So, so talk about the closings now. So we've got we need to get testing. We need to get our hospital capacity up. Talk about all these closings. Uh, pretty much schools are closing, but now public schools are starting to close. Why is this a good thing? I mean, it obviously makes sense on a basic level, but talk about why it's important to do this and for how long. Well, look, I think the basic advice here, and we heard Dr. Fauci tell this to Congress, is to try to prevent large gatherings and try to get people to disperse. Now, some of that seems pretty straightforward. The Professional sports leagues are shutting down either games or not having spectators at the game. Same things with the NCAA. Uh, When you talk about offices and schools, it starts to get a little more complicated. So for people with certain kinds of professions, shutting down the office and telling people to work remotely – you know, it's a very effective thing, uh, you know, particularly professional kind of trades uh, who travel a lot anyway and kind of work from their laptop wherever. Uh, sending those people away from the workplace obviously makes sense. Schools are more complicated still, right? And we have to think about this in a couple different sectors of schools. Colleges and universities, uh, you know, sending people home and telling them to uh, take classes online or whatever, that can work. I think there is a challenge there, though, right, which is that um, a, there are a lot of students, particularly at state universities, where their dorm room is their housing. That's where they live. And to send them home is to send them nowhere. And we need to be sensitive about that. We also know that a lot of universities, students get their health care through the university. They've paid for university health services, paid for an insurance plan that's connected to their university. And so how are they going to get health care if you send them home? So, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence, frankly, Kara, that the schools that have closed first – the universities that close first are the more elite universities that were the first to act. They can send their kids home to their parents. I think this is a harder question. If you run a state university, more of your student population is really relying on the university to provide their basic services to them. That's more complicated. And then you get to K-12, right? Well, I'll get to K-12. What would you do in that case, though, in terms of is that is it a better idea than the cost of doing it? Well, I think you have to make sure that the students have a place to go. You're not just shutting the dorms down and essentially leaving some of the lower-income students who've who really their dorm room is their home. You're not leaving them homeless, essentially, by shutting down the dorms. You have to make accommodations for students to either stay there or stay someplace else. If the university doesn't want to house them, you have to make sure they are able to get health care services where you're sending them to. I mean, dispersing people makes sense, but putting people in a worse situation than they are doesn't make sense. And when you send these students home, it's not like they're going to disappear. They have to live somewhere. They need to access the healthcare system somewhere. I understand why the colleges and universities don't really want it to be their problem, but they are just making it someone else's problem. And I think, uh, you know, they need to be sensitive about that and need to help students manage and mitigate that. And these are being made on a case-by-case basis, so it's not coordinated in any way. It doesn't seem to be coordinated in any way, certainly not coming from Washington, and uh, it certainly seems to be very uneven around the country. All right, so dispersing, getting rid of people. Now, what about K through 12? Well, K through 12 is even more complicated for a couple reasons. First of all, there's been a lot of studies about this in previous epidemics. It's not clear that closing schools really stops the spread of an epidemic. You close the schools, the students don't disappear. They go home. They go play with their playmates. They go run around playgrounds. They go, to the extent they're open, they go to shopping malls. They go to other places. So saying, basically, we're not going to have it in school, but we're still going to have the students running around interacting with one another just moves the place of spread from schools to someplace else. Here in America, in particular, we provide a lot of social services through our schools. Many millions of American children are fed breakfast and lunch at school. If you're going to close that school down, we've got to figure out where they're going to get their nutrition. So I understand the instinct for school closures, and I'm not saying they don't make sense, but we also have to understand the consequences of school closures. Obviously, child care for the parents of people whose uh, schools are closed. And this is happening so fast without much of a contingency plan. Uh, you know, I'd really, uh, I really worry about some of the unintended consequences of it. 
All right. And then there's also uh, work at home. M- many people can do it, like you said, that I can work at home. I think probably you can work at home because we have these uh, these knowledge industry jobs, essentially. You just need a connection, internet connection on your laptop, and you can do much of what you do. But many the economy has shifted in, the, in many ways to these gig economies where we have Uber drivers. We have people who, you know, task rabbits. There's all kinds of workers and contractors throughout the country. How do you deal with that? Because they don't, they have anal, essentially analog jobs. Right. And I think we have two problems with that, which is obviously they can't work from home. That's not their job. And secondly, when you look at what the policy responses here are going to be, there's going to be dislocation in the economy. And Congress is already talking about souped up unemployment insurance for people who lose their jobs because hotels shut down or or airlines either shut down or substantially reduce service and so on and so forth. But these gig economy workers, as we all know, don't have those unemployment benefits to soup up. So if people stop taking Ubers, and I think people will take fewer Ubers, and and, and the people who rely on Airbnb for their income, their hosts in Airbnb, as these people lose income, they can't even go to the unemployment office and get unemployment. And so I think as Congress considers what to do about this displacement we're going to see in the economy, this may be the moment where finally after years of conversation, we finally get to a place where gig economy workers are considered workers for the purpose of one of these big national benefit programs. Mm-hmm. The issue around someone like like an Airbnb, you know, it has these iterations that we, we couldn't have anticipated for because we've never been in this situation um, as people move to those jobs uh, over time. What would be a solution to dealing with that? There, there is just giving them the unemployment benefits, but to give them full benefits, health care benefits, and everything else. Yeah, so I think uh, ultimately we have to figure out the whole suite of benefits, but I think most immediately it's going to be lost income. It's going to be some version of a thing like that looks like unemployment insurance for people who are traditionally employed. We're going to need to do something like that for people who have these gig economy jobs or gig economy non-jobs, whatever we call them, who are going to see their incomes uh, decline. I mean, I just think there is no question that with the slowing you're going to see in the economy, with the slowing of travel, the slowing of people moving around, uh, a lot of where the gig economy has produced uh, income for people is going to go away. Now, other parts may go up. I mean, people may stay at home more, and, you know, the the DoorDash and Postmates and all these things may be doing more and more deliveries than ever. So there may be, you know, some some increases for some people. But by and large, this is going to be a a negative effect for for most people who work in the gig economy. So let's talk about the stock market. When you're doing these responses to these pandemics in in some way or or, or crises, how much do you think about that? I mean, obviously, the the, uh, Trump administration thinks about it all the time. Um, And it's been their sort of, you know, get-out-of-jail-free card, essentially, that the economy is doing so well, and look at the stock market and this and that. When you were doing this for President Obama, how how much discussion is about the impact on the, specifically the stock market, which is not the economy, by the way, Um, but it is certainly one of those things people pay a lot of attention to? Yes, I can say that in the six months I did this with President Obama, we had never had a single, not one conversation about the stock market. And really, no conversations about the economy. We thought it was a health crisis. It was a health risk to the American people. And the president's view is always, if we keep the American people safe and if we fight this disease in West Africa and save lives over there, that's going to be good for the world, good for people's health, and ultimately, you know, good for the economy. Uh, Here, you've seen the president's uh, interest in the coronavirus only really be sparked when the first time the market dropped dramatically. That's when he made changes in leadership in the team. That's when he really started to step up the response and start to ask questions about it. And I think it's both kind of a cause and effect here. I think that as the market gyrates, the president focuses on it more. But the market's gyrating in part, uh, obviously in part because of the direct effects of the virus and the direct effects of the economic impact of it, but in no small part because of the president's erratic strategy for dealing with it. People can deal with almost any piece of bad news as long as you give them some sense that you have a plan and some clarity about what it means and how long and where and what you're going to do about it. And I think the the president's, uh, you know, complete flip-flops on things and the president's misdirection, uh, misstatements are only adding to the sense that there's really nothing going on here. And I think that's – I think it's in some ways the lack of confidence, the lack of certainty that's hurting the markets as much as the actual direct 
economic impacts of the virus, which will be substantial. I don't, don't mean to minimize that. It will be substantial. Yeah, we're going to get on that in the next section. So how do you assess pre- uh, Vice President uh, Pence's efforts so far? And now Trump moved it from Alex Azar, sort of. Oh, I'm not clear who he's sort of running yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you had uh, Dr. Fauci popping up here and there. Um, but talk about how you look at the, the way it's set up right now with Vice President Pence. Well, I'd say, look, I think uh, there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical of, of Vice President Pence being in charge of the response. He botched a public health crisis in Indiana when he was governor of an AIDS outbreak in Scott County, uh, Indiana. He uh, obviously has a lot of skepticism about science. You know, so far, I think what he's done, you know, hasn't necessarily been bad. I just think it hasn't necessarily been very good. He stood up and told us that there would be a million test kits uh, by uh, Friday of a week ago. Uh, There's nowhere near that number. Then there was going to be 75,000. There's nowhere near that number. So I think, you know, his credibility on some of these statements and promises has fallen short. Uh, I do think he's, you know, trying to work with state and local governments. I do think he's, you know, trying to improve some of the interagency coordination. But uh, running a response like this is a full-time job. I think there are a lot of important things vice presidents can do. I've been a chief of staff to two vice presidents. They've each played huge roles in their respective administrations. But this is the kind of thing that really needs day-to-day, 24-7 uh, management, a uh, list of tasks, running the tasks, overseeing the people running the tasks, really kind of driving it. And I just wonder, uh, you know, how much focus Vice President Pence is able to give to this uh, and how effective he's able to be in giving that focus. There's also a lot of confusion about who's in charge. I mean, as you said, right. first there was no one in charge, then Alex Azar was in charge, then Trump announced that Pence would be in charge, but Azar would still chair the task force. Then he announced that Ambassador Debbie Burks, who I think is quite talented, would be the coordinator and she'd work for Pence, but she wouldn't give up her existing job fighting, uh, you know, w- working in global diseases in Africa. She'd kind of do this on the side. Then she was working for Pence. Maybe she works at the NSC. So I think, you know, one thing about this is the government's complex and confusing. Clear lines of authority are super important. And if anything, the lines of authority here just aren't that clear. And what is Dr. Fauci's role? Because he certainly sort of clarified it yesterday in, in congressional testimony. And, you know, there's there's a whole big uh, Twitter stream about whether he would get fired because he's sort of telling the truth and he's saying this is what's happening. What is his role and who does he work for? The president, correct? Well, ultimately the president. Dr. Fauci is the director of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. So he technically reports first to Dr. Francis Collins, the head of NIH, and ultimately through Dr. Collins uh, on to the president, of course. Dr. Fauci, uh, for those who don't know him, is an American icon. He has served six presidents. He played a key role in fighting HIV-AIDS. He's played a key role in fighting every epidemic we've seen since then. I worked with him very closely on the Ebola response. He is brilliant. He is our best infectious disease expert in the United States. And he will tell it like it is. And in fact, he is perhaps the first person in the three years of Trump who has publicly contradicted the president in the president's presence. When the president said at a press conference, we'd have a vaccine in a few months, Dr. Fauci said the same event, no, it's going to be 18 months. Uh, He's corrected the president when the president said that, you know, this wasn't going to be a very bad problem. And he was very candid in his testimony on Capitol Hill uh, yesterday. So I think that Dr. Fauci is someone we can look to to speak the truth. He has a key role in this, and it's not coordinating the whole thing. It's coordinating his piece of it, and his piece of it is overseeing the scientific work that is going to find us a vaccine and the scientific work that's going to find us treatments. We're going to probably have treatments for people with the disease before we have a vaccine, and that research and development on that is in Dr. Fauci's uh, bailiwick. That's a very, very important job. He played a critical role in fighting Ebola. He's played a critical role in every infectious disease challenge this country's played. But someone needs to be at the White House coordinating his work with the work at CDC, with the work at FDA, with the work at other parts of HHS, with the work of all the other government agencies. That's the job of the White House. And his in his relationship to the CDC, Dr. Fauci's, is is that he's working on specific things to solve the crisis. Correct. Dr. Fauci is really working on the science and the research of the crisis. He is a public health expert as well. He's fantastic at public communications. He speaks clearly. People understand what he says. But the effort to find the disease, running the testing program, uh, working with state and local governments on that, that's what the Centers for Disease Control do. So Dr. Robert Redfield 
runs that agency. That's his part of it. And as we've seen in this, uh, there, as I mentioned earlier, there's been this loggerheads between the folks at CDC and a third part of Health and Human Services, the Food and Drug Administration, which approves has to approve any new treatments, therapeutics, diagnostics. And so there's been some difficulty there. It's a big, complicated government that gives us a lot of tools, but it also means you need to get the pieces all in sync. So it would be the CDC on the ground and then Dr. Fauci's group at the at NIH coming up with the cure, essentially. Correct. And then being allowed to do that, not being stopped. Not being stopped, being allowed to communicate about it clearly, and directly, Dr. Fauci, as I said, also in addition to his direct work at NIH and, uh, and at the Institute, he has a great voice on public health. And what he was doing in front of Congress this week was speaking the truth about the risks to the public of the virus spreading and about the need for us to take more substantial measures in terms of social mitigation to prevent the virus from spreading. And the ability to talk about this sort of in a transparent way is critically important um, and not to keep information balanced with the idea of not panicking people, obviously. Right. I think what – you know, one thing that Dr. Fauci said to I me mean, when we worked together on Ebola was uh, that what really drives anxiety is not telling people bad news. It's just not telling them anything or telling them confusing things. As long as you're clear and transparent in your communications, people can really deal with this. Is a, this is a brave country. It's a country that gets through a lot of things. And, uh, and I, I think people just kind of need to know what's going to happen, how is it going to happen, when's it going to happen, where is it going to happen. And I think that the president's effort to step on top of Dr. Fauci and step on top of the folks at CDC um, and kind of say, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, you know, don't worry about it. Only 15 cases. They'll all be gone in a week. Um, you know, just makes people worried that there's something here that they're not being told, that it's not being managed. And so I think if the president would step back and communicate less and let Dr. Fauci communicate more, uh, not only will we do a better job with the response, but I think people would have a lot more confidence in that. Yeah, you're going to wait a long time for that, Ron. <laughs> anyway, we're here with Ron Klain. He was President Obama's Ebola czar and now is the co-host of a podcast about the coronavirus called Epidemic. Uh, we'll be back to talk about where we get the cure and also his work with Joe Biden when we get back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We're here with Ron Klain. Ron is a longtime political uh, operative. Are you an operative, Ron? I don't know how else to say it. You've worked in lots of political uh, I've done things, yeah, sure, sure. And also government. But he's also was, more critically for this discussion, the White House Ebola response coordinator under President Obama in 2014 and 2015. What are the lessons from that? I mean, obviously, Ebola wasn't cured and isn't cured, but what were the lessons that you took away that are most important? Well, so um, a couple things. One, uh, we live in a very connected world, and we can't pretend that we don't. Um, we had to, to keep Ebola from coming to the United States. We had to go to Africa to fight Ebola. We had to help Which people Which is different there. than this. This is a domestic issue versus a— Well, it's a little bit of both, Kara. So I think right now we're very focused on the domestic response. But also we may ultimately um, have to go to Africa again if this disease spreads in Africa to help the countries there. I mean, right now, where the disease is, the countries have relatively strong healthcare systems. Uh, no one's asking us to send aid workers to Italy or China or Korea or Singapore. But it could spread to countries where we have to send aid workers to help out. And we're going to have to be willing to do that if, to prevent it from becoming even more widespread and lasting even longer. Secondly, uh, you need to have a well-organized, well-coordinated response here in the U.S. While we never saw many Ebola cases here in the U.S., we did have about two dozen people with the disease who had to be treated here, and we had to get ready for the possibility of more. That meant working in our system to prepare hospitals, to speed up the diagnostic process, to really accelerate the ability to track and trace. I mean, one reason why we didn't have to ban travel is we built a very sophisticated system to track everyone coming here from West Africa to get their temperature twice a day, to isolate anyone who seemed to be getting sick, to get them quickly uh, tested and uh, treated if, if need be. Uh, you need to build sophisticated systems to deal with these kinds of things. And that's what we did. And, and I think you need to do one other thing, which is you need to let science and medicine, not politics, drive it. 
President Obama really took the science and medical advice from his science and medical advisors. Sometimes that was politically unpopular. People wanted him to ban all travel to and from Africa. They wanted him to impose draconian quarantines. It would make it very hard for the healthcare system to respond as needed. And instead, he listened to his scientists. He took some political heat. We followed uh, medical uh, expertise and as a result, mounted a very, very effective response, both here at home and overseas. There was a, a projection from the CDC in September of 2014 that a million people were going to die in Africa from Ebola. In the end, the death toll was 11,000. And that's because uh, of the interventions, not just by the United States in that case, other countries and Africans themselves. Africans really led the way in the fight against Ebola. But our country played a critical role as a support to that response, as expertise in that response, as hands and arms and legs in that response. And working together, we were able to save hundreds of thousands of lives. So right now, if, if President Trump called you and said, Ron, I want you to be the, uh, the coronavirus czar, what would you do? And presuming you'd say yes, what would you do? And you, I'll let you do whatever you want. What would you do? Well, first of all, let's be clear, the call is not going to come. And, <laughs> I don't think uh, so. And it would be hard to say yes to President Trump, frankly, because it would be hard to believe that he would let you do what you needed to do. Um, but I'm going to posit look, that I he think, did, that he suddenly— Yeah, yeah. We're going to invent a new Donald Trump come here. Come to Jesus. Um, I'm yeah. going to let you do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, I think that what I would do is—it's uh, going to sound very simple but also very hard, which is we need to figure out what's not done. And that's largely around the testing problem and around the healthcare capacity problem. And we need to really— uh, figure out how to search that. On the testing situation, what I would do is uh, really try to figure out how to break this logjam and surge the number of test kits so that we can go back to extensive public testing, both in a clinical setting and in a surveillance setting, uh, figure out why CDC and FDA can't get along and kind of you know, break that logjam, uh, really ramp up production. Uh, there are always solutions to these things if you're creative, and I just don't think we've pursued creative solutions on the testing side. I would also set a goal of how many people we're going to test in the next four weeks. It should be in the millions. And report to the American people on a daily basis on how we're doing on that. People deserve to know where the progress is. I think uh, there's just been an effort to hide and obscure the problem here. And I think, you know, as we see in, in all kinds of human endeavors, if you measure it, if you report on the measurement, you improve performance and you improve accountability. And I think there's just no accountability here. On the hospital situation, I would be tasking FEMA and I'd be asking the governors to task their respective National Guards to figure out what their capacities are very quickly, very rapidly to deploy uh, temporary healthcare facilities around the country on 24 hours notice. I think we should be on a 24-hour rule here. Uh, FEMA is pretty good at this, sometimes a little slower than they can be, but, uh, but they could be really ramped up. And by the way, we're going to need to think about uh, new partners in this thing. Um, my friend and my hero, Jose Andres, has proven through World Central Kitchen that he can feed people better and more quickly than FEMA can. He's been involved in this already. He's fed the passengers on the cruise ships that have been uh, quarantined. Um, and uh, I think we're going to need partners like that to help really staff and run and, and, and make all this work. So, you know, when I took over the Ebola response, people were very critical of the president's selection of me because they said he's not a doctor, he's not a medical expert. The doctors and the medical experts know what to do. It's a logistical challenge to make those things a reality. The, it's not medical expertise that is needed to get 150,000 people tested in Korea, 5,000 United States. It's planning, organization, management, and leadership. And that's really what's lacking. Is there anything the tech community can do? Because obviously they've been among the first to put, do work at home. They've been among the first to uh, close down and, and, and do a wide range of things. But is there anything uh, besides, you know, inventing Zoom or things like that that can change it? Because this is the first this, this crisis where we do have all this social media and the ability to communicate quickly and the ability to work from home, the ability to distance, social distance ourselves. So I think the most important thing the tech community could do beyond all those things you mentioned, Kara, is really work on the problem of disinformation and misinformation on the platforms. You know, we're going to eventually get a vaccine. We're going to uh, certainly sooner have therapeutics. And there will be just so much effort on these platforms to keep people from using these drugs and keep people from using the vaccine. And in the interim, even, there's just so much wrong information passing around on these platforms 
that I think definitely impedes the response. I mean, we live in a country where flu does kill a lot of people. I think this is much worse than the flu. Flu does kill a lot of people. And we have a vaccine that isn't perfect but does definitely present a number of cases of prevent flu. And still 50 percent of the American people don't get the flu shot. And there's just a lot of bad information out there about that. You know, so I think that uh, what Facebook, what Twitter, what the other platforms need to do is really – and I know, they're, I know they're working on this. I know they, they pop up truthful information at the top when you search and so on and so forth. But uh, still, this is a problem. I like, you know, I like to say, Kara, that there is not just purely a coincidence that uh, bad information that spreads quickly on the internet is called viral. And it is a, it is a virus just like, uh, just like this is. And that is going to be a real challenge as we continue to fight this disease. 100 percent. Now, finishing up with the uh, coronavirus, and then I want to talk about Joe Biden very quickly. Um, you were saying therapeutics first, which is how to deal with the respiratory issues, you know, how to deal with them on a scale basis, and then eventually a vaccine. And and uh, Dr. Fauci was talking about 18 months. They've got to go into testing of these vaccines that they're trying to put into place. What comes next? How does this go? There's going to be ramping up of these people getting sick, and dealing with that, which is mitigation, essentially, of dealing with the ones that are sick. But where does it where does it go from there, and how long does it last? Because I think most people don't know. They're saying May, June, we don't know, maybe next year. How do these—we don't know—I don't know is pretty much the answer I hear. Yeah, so, so I'll just add to the I don't know by I don't know. But, but I will say here's what kind of standard epidemic patterns would tell us, which is that you'll see cases ramp up pretty quickly here over the next few weeks. And at some point in time— probably April, maybe May, they'll start to peak and head back down. But then it will come back a second time. Almost every one of these epidemics has kind of this echo because what happens is one of the reasons why the curve bends back down is we start to see what we're doing now, which is people start to – we shut businesses, we shut schools, people don't go to NBA games, we you know separate, we distance, we are all better about bumping elbows instead of shaking hands. We're all washing our hands 40 times a day. And then after some period of time, we stop doing all those things, right? Life goes back to normal, and the disease kind of comes back because we stopped doing the things that kept the disease from spreading. So I think it is a guess, but if you ask me to guess, I would say we'll see a surge of cases. We'll see this continue for a number of months. It will dip back down, and then at some point in time in the future, maybe fall, maybe winter, no way to know really, we'll see the number of cases start to come back up. As I said before, you know, the goal of public health responses is to flatten the curve, is to stretch it out so that it doesn't peak as sharply, it doesn't crash the system. That If that works, this will go on longer but be less severe. So part of the reason why Dr. Fauci was so firm in refusing to put numbers or a timeline before Congress was that it, it isn't just a um, – a fact of nature or an epidemiological fact, these interventions will matter and these interventions will have an impact if we do them and if we do them successfully, they'll have an impact of reducing the number of cases at any given time but may well spread out the cases a little longer. And then the vaccine, which will happen at some point, what they, they were saying. The vaccine will definitely happen at some point. Uh, it is. I understand why it's frustrating to people how long it happens. Uh, a lot of some of that time is for testing. A lot of that time is for production. Producing a vaccine is a complicated thing. There are, for example, only eleven plants on planet Earth that make the flu vaccine. And what should be obvious to anyone is, if you have a factory that can produce vaccine at scale and safely, it's in use right now. I mean, no one builds a factory like that and just has it sitting around waiting for a new vaccine. And it's at scale right now. And, producing a vaccine that's needed for something else. You know, we need to still inoculate children against MMR and DPT and all these things. And so I think one of the challenges is how do you get that capacity uh, to uh, get a sufficient number of dosages of this vaccine that it can be widely used. And that's also going to take some time even after you go through the safety testing and the efficacy testing of any vaccine. And also, to be clear, and I'm going to say this because it's driving me crazy, my mother kept telling me that the flu vaccine is not going to fix this problem if you get coronavirus. Correct. The flu vaccine, this is one of President Trump's ideas. You just ideas. won't get the flu. You just won't get the flu, which you shouldn't. Like, don't get the flu. Flu is bad. We don't want the flu. It will make you weaker. It will make you weaker. And also, it will. you could take up a hospital bed with the flu that someone with the coronavirus who couldn't get a vaccine you know, needs. And so the fewer people we're hospitalizing for the flu, the better. Uh, and everyone should get their flu shot if they haven't gotten it already. 
Yeah, my my mom is driving me crazy with some of the things she's saying, which is, you know, she's in the the most, the risk group, which is older people. Yeah. Um, lastly, who is at risk? Is older people, as people know, it's much older people, uh, younger people are under less risk, and children don't seem to be at risk at all, which I think is the, the great mercy here. Um, I would imagine if that was the case, this country would be insane at this point. Um yeah, I mean, there's no question it's uh, older people. And in fact, uh, you know, the older you get, the more at risk you are from the consequences of it, like any other respiratory ailment. People, uh, in, in, in even among the older people, it really divides between people who are older and healthy and people who are older and have some kind of pre-existing health conditions, some kind of respiratory ailment, heart ailment, something else that compromises their ability to fight this off. And so, uh, particularly those people who are at risk. There are younger people with compromised immune systems, with certain kinds of immune related diseases that also have some exposure and risk here. But by and large, if you look at the early data, particularly from Italy, almost all the fatalities are among the elderly. Right. All right. So I want to finish up on this. The things you do are, one, wash your hands, do social distancing, the things that people have been saying, correct? Which is the same as I was looking for posters for the uh, 1918 influenza, uh, Spanish influenza problem, and they were almost the same things, which is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. Um, you and I both, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about the world of innovation and change and technology, and the way in which we fight epidemics really hasn't changed very much in 100 years. Uh, it's uh, basically trying to keep people away from one another. If you get on top of it early, it's tracing the contacts and the kind of effort to isolate cases and figure out chains of transmission. And it's a lot of basic hygiene measures of washing your hands, not touching your face, all the stuff to prevent the spread of the virus and people getting infected. Right. All right, Ron, I want to switch very quickly to finish up on talking about uh, Joe Biden. Are, you're still an advisor to him, is that I correct? Am. I am. I am indeed. I'm uh, helping out on the campaign. So this turnaround must have, he just announced a group of people he would have involved uh, with any epidemics or scientific stuff also and was going to do an event, I think, but now is doing it virtually. You must be sort of like, this was not, he was sort of not doing very well and now is obviously the presumptive candidate. Well, just like we planned it. I mean, look, I think that right. <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, we always had a lot of confidence that uh, the vice president would do very well with African American voters, with an electorate that represented the full range of the Democratic Party. Obviously, Iowa and New Hampshire were not representative in that way. We knew they were going to be challenging places for us. We really believed that he would do well, win in South Carolina, and really go from there. Uh, but I, I have to confess that it's uh, succeeded. Uh, even uh, better than we expected. Uh, I think that what's really working here is that people are looking for an alternative to Donald Trump, someone who was decent, someone who cares about people, someone who will restore the basic levels of competence and integrity and honesty to the Oval Office. And the more we see Trump flail and fail, the more someone like Joe Biden is an attractive alternative to that. I think, you know, a lot of politics is about being the right person at the right moment. And I think, um, you know, Joe Biden obviously has an incredibly distinguished career of public service. I've been proud to work with him both back in the Senate and in the White House. And, uh, and I think also he really is answering the kind of leadership that people are looking for now. So how effective do you think that, you know, there's been all these stories about the Trump a campaign attacking his competence, whether he's addled, all kinds of stuff like that. Now, it's not such a good look right now, given this response looks pretty addled. How do you fight against something like that? Obviously, Joe Biden is someone who does misspeak quite a bit. It's one of his hallmarks since he's forever. How do you deal with something like that, especially in this age of disinformation? Because it's all over Twitter, it's all yeah. over uh, Facebook, everything else. So I think the I think the campaign's been very aggressive about uh, calling out misinformation about the vice president. Uh, in fact, I think the very first video Twitter has ever labeled as. Uh, misleading or whatever the label was, was a video that was misleading about the vice president. The campaign asked Twitter to label as such. Uh, so I think we're kind of, a, 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 you know, really being aggressive about fighting this disinformation on online. Um, and however that's spread on these platforms, I think that is a challenge for any campaign in this era. And 
I think the Biden campaign is on top of that challenge. You know, fundamentally, the American people have seen Joe Biden over the course of this campaign. He's debated 10 times. Uh, he speaks out several times a week. He's does interviews. I was on cable two nights ago doing a big interview with Lawrence O'Donnell. So, uh, you know, people are going to make a decision about his capacity. I think what they're seeing, I mean, what the voters are saying week after week in these primaries is that they think he is the right person to take on Donald Trump and to save the soul of America and restore our democracy. So, <laughs> I, you know, so I just, jobs. you know, I just think that the, the, the voters are answering these charges by their votes. And um, do you worry a lot, though, about the, the way the way these things can go viral? in that way, in that, you know, that that back and forth he had with the guy over gun control. It goes, every single thing he says is now scrutinized in a way and can be done over and over and over again in lots of ways. How do you change the campaigning? Because you've You've been to this, you know, this yeah. rodeo before, but it's a very different rodeo. I actually think uh, the more people see of him, the better. So, look, that exchange with the voter in Michigan, the factory worker in Michigan about gun control, um, where the vice president basically used the S word to describe his mm-hmm. position on gun control. You can say shit here. Can I really? Okay. Yes. Well, he called the voter full of shit for reading off of his cell phone a series of NRA talking points about how the vice president was going to take away his guns. You know, look, I, I think that's kind of the candor and transparency we're seeing in the uh, political system right now. People shoot it with cameras and iPhones and everything he says is out there. And so he knows that. And I think, look, I think that um, I think people are looking for that. I mean, they, they, particularly on the issue of gun control, people are tired of thoughts and prayers and, you know, cowering to the NRA. And the fact that Joe Biden has beaten the NRA previously in his career, got an assault and ban passed, got a, a background checks passed, uh, then he's willing to stand up and call out the NRA bullshit when people say the NRA bullshit. Uh, then, then, like I think that's a good thing, and I think kind of that candor, that directness, is a is a positive thing. I, I hope I hope a billion zillion people see that videotape. All right, and how tough is he going to be on the tech? I, I'd be remiss if I didn't. The tech industry. Others have been Elizabeth Warren. Others have been uh, more so. He is less talked about that at all. And you've obviously been involved in the tech industry and. Yeah, you know, so understand the issues. So look, I think he is going to be, uh, you know, very tough on making sure that uh, the platforms are responsible. I think he's very concerned about misinformation on them. He's talked about Section Two Thirty, and people can go see his interview with the New York Times editorial board that's online where he talked about that. Um, so you know, I think he is uh, very focused on a lot of these issues. It has been less part of his campaign, perhaps, than others campaigns, uh, but I think it's uh, something that he has talked about, and he'll continue to talk about. Last question about this campaigning. With this virus, I want to link the two. Is it going to affect this election in terms of he's obviously can't uh, campaign. He's canceled some events. So is Bernie Sanders. Who's, let me just, I don't want to be remiss to say he's still in the race. There is, it is, yes, Joe Biden absolutely. does not have this locked up. What happens to the election if this is going to continue, like you say, into the fall and winter? Um, November is when the election is. What are you all thinking about in those terms? So I think we've just started to think about some of these issues. And I think, um, there's no reason why this should interfere with the electoral process at all. It obviously is interfering with the campaigning process. The Biden campaign has pulled down large events. Uh, both Senator Sanders and Vice President Biden were supposed to have rallies in Cleveland on Tuesday. Both canceled those rallies. Um, the Biden campaign's canceled some other events and gone to virtual events. And we're going to see that impact. There is There definitely are ways to safely administer elections, to have people who have to wait in line to spread out. I hope we'll use more use of of remote voting and early voting uh, to the extent people are nervous about going to polling places. But, but you know, look, I think that uh, we need to practice social distancing. We need to practice social mitigation, but we also need to practice democracy. And, um, and we should be able to run elections in a way that can keep voters safe and nonetheless keep elections on. And I don't think that um, there should be any doubt or hesitation about that. Are there any worries that the Trump administration might try to do something around this if the virus gets worse? Look, uh, I never take anything off the table for the Trump administration, but um, I I don't think uh, that would be acceptable to anyone. It's not just Donald Trump and a Democrat who are on the ballot for president. We have elections up and down the ballot. There are a lot of Republicans who want to win their elections this fall as well. And so uh, I, I think any effort to suggest that this should interfere with the electoral process in any way should be rejected out of hand. Uh, this is a management thing. This is a thing that can be done in a way that keeps people safe. But uh, we can't allow our democracy to be derailed by any um, efforts to hijack this 
virus into some kind of conspiracy thing. Right. And perhaps a time to be voting on our phones. Is that going to happen, Ron? You, you and Steve Case can invent yeah, it. Well, you know, look. <laughs> Iowa. Yeah, Go yeah, Iowa. Yeah, look, I think I do think that better technology and voting would be a, a good thing. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I do think that it's, it's a shame that we still have these problems with the counting and casting of ballots. Among my earlier hats was running the recount for Vice President Gore in Florida in 2000, where we had a catastrophic technology failure there in terms of the counting and casting of ballots. Uh, it's, again, shocking how little technology has progressed in the 20 years since then. Uh, and I, I wish there was more innovation in rocks. the ability to— Ron, rocks. Rocks? Bring a rock. Everyone brings a box. rock? Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe that's next. <laughs> no, it's sometimes technology doesn't solve problems. But we'll see about that. We'll see. Um, anyway, I really appreciate you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you so much. And please wash your hands, Ron. Uh, you too, Kara. Always. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Ron, where can people find you online? I am on Twitter at, at Ronald Klain. And the All Epidemic right. and podcast, your, your podcast. Yeah, is it at Epidemic Podcast? All right. It's a great podcast, by the way. It's full of incredibly important information. If you really like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.